thanks for tuning in to the Durban Memorial Baptist Church podcast. We're a group of sinners saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and here you will hear the Word of God. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is once again a blessing to share the Word of God with the saints of Durban Memorial Baptist Church. When we discuss an idea together, we often want to fall into two extremes that are equally wrong. Uh, For example, when we talk about Scripture, we sometimes talk about grace and truth. So some want to focus so completely on grace that there is no standard of truth and righteousness. And then others focus on truth and and a set of self-righteous standards with little regard to grace. One side focuses on self-indulgence, the other self-performance, while both of them miss the boat. If you're tracking with me here, this happens in the non-religious world as well. Some people take dieting so extremely seriously that they virtually starve themselves and abuse themselves. Others, myself included at many times, don't consider the negative consequences of not having any sort of dietary plan. And the the healthy middle position is really to understand that making healthy dietary decisions is a way to steward our bodies for the glory of God. While understanding and appreciating, God instructs us to feast Together, So there's a, a middle ground in the middle uh, and we enjoy his creation uh, that way. But my, my point here this morning is not to say that the answer is always in the middle. So if my mother instructs me not to lie and then my friend tells me to lie all the time, the, that doesn't mean it's OK to lie sometimes. Just because two positions exist doesn't mean that we need to always try to sit in the middle. However, I do want to highlight That in our sinful human condition, we often drift to extremes that are not good for us, nor giving glory to God. There is a reality in the Christian life pertinent to our text today that we can be guilty of falling into two extremes of. Let me first present the reality and then I will describe the two extremes. The reality is you are at war. That is a reality. You are at war. You are a soldier fighting a spiritual battle. Now, before we go any further into this, I do want to take just a brief moment to honor and thank the veterans that are here today. Uh, Your service to our country is uh, appreciated. And uh, any participation you had in physical battle may allow you to have an even deeper understanding uh, of what we're talking about this morning. And in a few moments, we're going to look at a physical battle that illustrates the spiritual reality that I'm alluding to at this time. But it's a fact All of us, recognized or not, are soldiers in a spiritual battle. We are at war. Now, I've stated the reality, so let's talk about the two extremes that people sometimes take with this. First, we have the deniers. you hear the pastor say something like you're at war and you roll your eyes. You, you look at the condition of your life. You say everything's seemingly fine. It's going well. You might say, I'm a secretary, not a soldier, Brad. Uh, further than that, you might say that your Christian religion all in all precludes you from being any, any sort of brutish soldier. Or maybe you're not even a Christian and you just say, I'm not in a war. I just love all people. 
But God's word, the ultimate descriptor of truth and source of reality for us, shows us that we are indeed fighting in a spiritual battle. Towards the end of the Bible, we're not going to turn there, but I'm just going to present it for you. In 1 John chapter 3, we learn that there are only two kinds of people in the world in 1 John chapter 3. There's the children of God and there's the children of the devil. Everything can categorically fit. All people fit into one of the two categories. All of us are one or the other. And with that understanding, you can turn back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3 and see that there is enmity between the children of God and the children of the devil. We are all serving in a war that we do not see with our physical eyes. The question is not, are we at war? The question is rather, what side are you on? So we can't deny the reality. But there's another extreme of this reality. In fact, there have been many atrocities committed by those wanting to participate in spiritual warfare. For instance, Christians across the globe today are persecuted in ways that would be hard for us to even imagine. Saints are martyred every day. The most recent number I could find from Lifeway Research this week suggested that nearly 6,000 Christians were killed for their faith in 2021. Whether they know it or not, those engaged in the persecution, those murdering the Christians, are actively engaged in a spiritual battle that goes on around us. Now, Sadly, it's also true that there are people claiming the name of Christ committing horrible acts. We see that all the time. I would say that their fruit proves they did not know Christ at all. But nonetheless, they, are used, uh, they, they use the reality of a spiritual warfare to act on the lusts of their flesh. So some people deny that there's battle altogether. Some people act on the lusts of their flesh in the name of the, the, the war. The truth is... The biblical position is we are at war. We are soldiers fighting a spiritual battle. We need to understand and appreciate that as God shows us in his word and act accordingly. I'm going to have you turn to 2 Corinthians or it'll be up on the screen. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 3 through 5. It says, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. We are undoubtedly in spiritual battle and the war we wage is likewise spiritual. That means we don't have to react or or, or resort to physical acts of violence to make an impact, to be fighting in this battle. Through proclaiming the word of God, we are used by God to destroy the strongholds of satanic falsehoods. Physical tactics are powerless to free souls from the forces of darkness. If we were to conquer the world in the name of Jesus, but never share his gospel, it would all be for naught. Because this battle that we're in is not a physical battle. 
But through the proclamation of God's word, which pierces to the division of soul and of spirit, of joint and marrow, people are exposed to the truth and Satan's schemes are undone. You might not realize this, but this is the war we are in. This is your role as a soldier to proclaim the word of God. Militaristic language is used all throughout the New Testament because the reality is we are soldiers at spiritual war. So the question remains that I asked earlier, which side are you on? I realize talking in military terms seems kind of foreign to us when we come to church. Might make us uncomfortable today. That's because our culture has changed the church into a business model rather than an embassy. We view evangelistic efforts as a strategy for growth. I'm guilty of this myself. I'm putting my hand up, y'all. But our evangelistic strategy isn't a growth strategy. It's a war plan. The reality is the stakes are high. God's word shows us we are at war. We are soldiers that have a fight to fight. And we fight with zeal because God's word shows us, y'all, we win. One pastor said, behind the warfare of the language in the New Testament, the warfare language in the New Testament, we need to see the actual warfare of the Old Testament. All scripture is breathed out by God, right? Profitable for reproof, teaching, correction, and training in righteousness. The man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Just as we should look back on the Old Testament to uh, understand the New Testament's language of sacrifice and redemption and so on and all that, what we've been looking at on our Wednesday night Bible study, we ought to see the language of war associated with the Christian gospel against its necessary and clarifying background in the Old Testament. So with that in mind, open up to 1 Samuel chapter 11 if you haven't already. In this section of scripture, we're going to walk through what is a really graphic account of Old Testament warfare. As we walk through this text, I'm hoping that we will see the realities of the physical battle coincide with the realities of the spiritual battle that we're a part of. As you're turning there, I want to just quickly remind us where we're at in the narrative here. The people of Israel were asking for a king. They wanted to look like the rest of the nation. Israel uh, was rejecting following God, following the Lord, uh, and so that they could have a leader that looked like other countries. What seemed like very normal circumstances was used by God to, uh, to give them a leader. It changed a tall farmer's life uh, completely. God calls Saul to be the first king. Since that became clear, Saul really hasn't done anything as king at where we're at in the story. Samuel, the the judge and prophet, has given Israel the guidelines for what the kingdom is supposed to look like, how the king is supposed to act and honor God. And now it seems that some of the Israelites don't like this idea. So they already begin doubting Saul's ability to be their king. Now we're going to pick up in chapter 11. And the scene is in a completely different location than where everything else has happened. Uh, And and so it's another part of Israel that we're picking up in. Read with me starting in verse 1. We'll just read verse 1 for now. Then Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. So we're going to begin to walk through this text. And I hope that you pick up three themes that we'll be cycling through as we go through this. 
We're looking for the wickedness of those who stand against God. We're looking for the thickness of the people's skull, of Israel's skull. And we're looking for the quickness of God to work through this situation. Now, when I say the word quickness, I'm not talking about speed. I'm using the old English form of the word quickness that is talking about God's livelihood to be working in a situation. That word quicken is to be alive, to be active in a situation here. God is not dead. He is alive and he is active and he is alive today as he was working through the situation we're studying here in 1 Samuel. So those are the three themes that we're going to be uh, looking at. In this first verse, two of the themes become evident. First, we see the wickedness of those who stand against God in the actions of Nahash the Amnite. The the Amnites were descendants from Lot. They shared a border with Israel. Uh, That led to consistent conflicts. The Ammonites were unconcerned that God promised them, Israelites, this land. They wanted to have this land for themselves. We will see more of their wickedness on display in the following verses. But we're giving an interesting textual link right here in verse 1. Nahash, the leader of the Ammonites, is a very interesting name. Nahash's name means serpent. Nahash's name means serpent. Serpent. As we think about this in the greater context of Scripture, our minds should be drawn back to the beginning, drawn back to the garden. Remember, I alluded to this earlier, but God said uh, there will be enmity between the offspring of Eve and the offspring of the serpent. In our text this morning, we are seeing a tangible outcome of what God said was going to be the case. The aggression of the Ammonites is an instance of antagonism between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Of battle between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. Between God's people and the children of the devil. We have to realize the enmity that we're getting a glimpse of here still exists today and thus we need to be prepared to boldly join the battle. Unfortunately for the Israelites in our text this morning, they do the opposite. We see the thickness of the Israelites thinking when instead of standing firm in the promises of God, knowing that God said, this is our land. So y'all don't need to come over here. God said, this is ours. Instead of saying that, they look at them. They say, make a treaty with us so that we can serve you. The Israelites' first response to trouble was to virtually bow down to their oppressor. If you've been with us for the past few sermons, this should come as a massive surprise to us that this would be the reaction. Why? Well, first, because the Israelites are God's people. He's fought their battles for them already. He's brought them up out of Egypt. He's fed them in the wilderness. We've seen time and time again, they are God's people. Yet they have no faith that he will do what he's already done for them here again. Second, Israel was just given a new king. We looked at that last week. They just got their king. They wanted a king to look like everyone else, a king who would go out before them and fight their battles for them. God gave them Saul. Saul was a man head and shoulders above everybody else. Quite literally uh, a a, a man's man. (laughs) 
God gave him Saul. And yet it seemed clear the people did not see their new king as able to help him. Even the last verse of chapter 10 that we looked at last week showed us some were already thinking, how can this man save us? Now, we rightly shame the lack of faith displayed by the Israelites in this verse, but we must not be quick to do so because so often we're thick scold ourselves. We ignore those times where we do the same thing, virtually the same thing that they do. How quick can we be to discard the God we claim to love when the challenges of culture come our way? We, not, we might not be met with swords, but we shy away from proclaiming the word of God to contently go on with the cultural zeitgeist to look like everyone else. We'd often rather look like everyone else than stand firm in our faith in the Lord. We see why that's dangerous in the next verse. Look at verse two. But Nahash, the Ammonite said to them, on this condition, I will make a treaty with you that I gouge out all your eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The wickedness of God's enemies becomes even clearer right here. Nahash doesn't just want their surrender. He wants their full submission to remove their honor and to render them useless. Gouging out the right eye might seem brutal on its own. Like if we just think about that, that's pretty gross to think about, right? But the intention behind it makes it even more dastardly. It incapacitated them from further effective combat. A foot soldier carried a shield in his left hand and would block, uh, this would block the remaining vision in his eye. So he would no longer be able to hold the shield up this way and look and fight. Furthermore, loss of the right eye would hamper the use of a bow and arrow. They no longer would have the proper depth perception for a bow and arrow. So the Israelites in Jabesh Gilead already said, yo, we'll serve you. But now he wants to ensure that their military forces are completely useless and from there bring disgrace to dishonor all of Israel, not just the people in Jabesh Gilead. He basically wants to use this to make God's people a laughing stock to the rest of the world. That's what's going on there when he wants to gouge out their rhinos. As we relate this historical narrative to the reality of the spiritual warfare that we're in today, we must realize that even though the means may be different, the intention of the opposition is the same. Track with me here. Satan would love nothing more than to have us bow to the winds of culture and in so bring disgrace to the people of God. When we willfully go along with the ways of the world, we are bringing disgrace on God's people. The rest of the world looks at worldly carnal Christians and thinks, well, there's certainly nothing to that God they say they serve. We must know We will never bend enough to actually gain worldly approval. We'll never concede enough. They will always ask for more capitulation into culture. There's a children's book called If You Give a Mouse a Cookie. The premise of the book starts that if you give a mouse a cookie, they're going to ask for more. You give a mouse a cookie, got to give them a glass of milk. 
Then you gotta give him a mirror so he can check out his milk mustache. Then when he's there, you gotta give him some scissors to trim up the milk mustache, or to trim up the, the all that, and so on and so on. The mouse is never satisfied. It ends up you end up giving him another cookie. Then you gotta give him another dust. It's just a cycle of more and more and more. Christian, we will never concede enough to be accepted by the world. It may start with requesting that we give some leeway on creationism. Then we're told to give up on the sanctity of life. And then it's giving up on biblical standards for purity and relationships. And next thing you know, we're told to accept pluralism as we give concession after concession after concession. And then the church no longer finds itself to be a church, but actually just a social institution. The church no longer preaches Christ crucified, but personal pride. And it might sound like I'm an old man shaking his hand at the clouds right now, representing some sort of slippery slope fallacy. But it's not a fallacy when that very progression has already made its way through many of the mainline denominations right in our country. In just the last couple of years. And I tell you this. Satan is laughing at the state of the Western church or many of them right now. As much as Nahash would have been laughing if the Israelites had given in to his demand. Let's look at how they respond in verse three. The elders of Jabesh said to him, give us seven days respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one save us, we will give ourselves up to you. So they didn't like the demands. They said, oh, that's too far. And so they seek to find a savior. Now, on some level, this seems like a good decision. It is certainly better than giving in to the demands. But notice here that the Israelites are still being pretty thick. Uh, they, they, the Israelites in Jabesh are, are seeking to find a man to save them. They don't cry out to God to save them. They, they don't go to him in prayer. They don't even attempt to bring in the Ark of the Covenant like they did just a few chapters before this. We looked at that uh, last year sometime. Further, we'll see that they don't even acknowledge God's choice for a king and a protector in their land. We know this because they sent messengers throughout all the land. They didn't say, hey, go get Saul. We'll bring him in. They said, uh, we'll send someone out everywhere and just see if something comes back. They know they need a savior, but they are looking in all the wrong places. We can tell from the rest of the story that Nahash, for some reason, allowed them this request. While it's not stated explicitly, we can gather from that that Nahash was so confident in his ability to wipe out whatever opposition the Israelites could muster up that he didn't even see him as a threat. He's playing with them like a cat and mouse right now. Go ahead. Go find your savior. The wickedness of God's enemy and the denseness of the Israelites, once again, on full display. So what happens? We're going to kind of pick up the pace a little bit here. First Samuel eleven four, when the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people and all the people wept aloud. So the messengers are going all over the place, but they found themselves into Gibeah of Saul. That basically means Saul's hometown. Uh, and, and we can see that this was just a stop on their route. They weren't intentionally seeking out King Saul because they tell all the people in town. They're not worried about finding Saul. So Saul has to find out by walking up on the scene that we see in the next verse. Verse five. Now behold, 
Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. Another mundane day out on the farm for Saul turns out to be an incredible twist of fate. (laughs) A few chapters prior, he lost some donkeys, ended up being anointed king. Here he's working in the field with some oxen, and he's called to lead this battle. So it's awesome. It's here where we see the quickness, the activity of God in the story. Look at verse 6. In the spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words and his anger was greatly kindled. God empowers Saul to lead the battle. We must note that just as God empowered Saul for battle that was to come from here, he too has empowered his people to fight in the spiritual war that surrounds us. Saul on his own would have been useless for this task. He was a farmer. We never see anywhere in scripture before this that he had ever been in any sort of battle before. We get no indication that he has a military background. You too may think I'm just a regular person. You got no ability to fight against the cosmic powers over this present darkness that we find around ourselves. And that's true. On your own, you cannot fight the darkness For if you are on your own, you're actually, whether you know it or not, fighting for the darkness. But by the grace of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, he has sealed those who believe in him with his spirit. And he has given us the full armor of God to stand against the schemes of the devil. We fight not by our power, but by the very power of God. May we act in response to what Christ has done for us and given to us. Look at what Saul does. Verse 7. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people. They came out as one man. We've mentioned throughout this series a couple of times, Brother Roger did. I mentioned it the last couple of weeks. The ties that are connected to the the last few chapters of the book of Judges, that section of chapters 19 through 21. As the pieces of the oxen are dispersed through the country, it it intentionally invokes that same imagery of of the scene that happened there in, in the book of Judges. Everyone would have been well aware something is going down. We need to act here. The God-appointed deliverer, Saul here, powerfully and provocatively challenges those who have failed to recognize him. He says, follow me or else. Then we actually see some sense coming to the minds of the Israelites. We see the people respond in a way that shows they have some reverence for the Lord. Notice that it does not say they they fear Saul or Samuel. It says, the dread of the Lord fell upon them and they respond. As a point of practical application for our day today, we need to understand that God can and does use the actions of individuals for his divine purpose. Sermons like this this morning are used by God to open our eyes to the reality of spiritual warfare around us. The gathering together of the church in general is to spur, to to push one another on in serving the Lord. Sometimes we're going to talk about difficult topics. Sometimes you are going to be challenged in the way that you think or the decisions you make or the actions you take. The intention here 
Is that we would all have a healthy fear of the Lord and live our lives knowing he is God. We are his people and thus we serve him. God is quick. He is alive to work through all situations for the good of his people. Pay attention. Let's look at what happens next in our text. Verse 8. When he mustered them at Bezek, the the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. Just to note here, the people responded, right? The army is formed. Then look at the next verse. It's very interesting. Verse 9. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. The people who were distressed in Jabesh are now overjoyed. They're glad. Why? Because they had faith in a type of gospel. They were told, hey, your salvation's coming. They were in a desperate situation with seemingly no way out. They had no way to fight Nahash on their own. They sent messengers out all over the place. They did not know if anybody was coming from the message they sent out. And then just a day or so before the deadline of impending doom, they hear those sweet, sweet words, you shall have salvation. Church, this is the message we have For the lost and dying in our world. Salvation. Not only shall you have in a future tense. Salvation has come. Sinful man. Much like Jabesh Gilead. Is incapable. Utterly incapable. Of saving himself from the destructive schemes of Satan. In the weight of our own sin. We look for escape. And we look for salvation anywhere that we can. But it does not come. What a grace it is that God would allow us, the church, to be the messengers who come and tell the desperate and needy, you shall have salvation. You have one who will fight the seed of the serpent on your behalf. You can rest. You can be glad for your Savior is coming. What a message. May we do so today. Let's look at how God is quick to save in this story. Look at the last two verses. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day, Saul put the people in three companies and they came in the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. The Israelites in Jabesh use a little witty language that we kind of miss a little bit in English to drop the defenses of Nahash and the Ammonites. When they say we're going to give ourselves up, they are talking to Nahash there. When they say they give ourselves up there, it's a, it's a phrase that can go really two ways. It can be interpreted as, hey, we're going to surrender to you tomorrow. Or it can simply mean we're going to meet you on the battlefield tomorrow. It has a kind of a double meaning to it. Like we'll meet you to fight. They wanted to be intentionally vague here. And as verse 11 unfolds, we're not given these intricate details of exactly how the battle goes down. But one thing is certain. God assured victory for his people. The enemy, the son of the serpent, Nahash, was defeated. The Ammonites were scattered. We see here an active, a a quick God working in this situation. 
Despite the ferociousness, the dastardliness of the enemy and the denseness, the, the dumbness of the Israelites, God's will was going to be done. Now, I am sure that for all parties involved, there were some scary sights. There were some insecurities along the way. But God was never not in control of this situation. All of what we have talked about this morning should open our eyes to the reality of spiritual warfare that we find ourselves in. The enemy is real. The enemy seeks to disable, to disarm, and dishonor you. But praise be to God that we can say salvation is here. Christ has defeated the serpent. He has defeated death. Look no further for the Savior we all pine for than to the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth, the one who loves us and has freed us by his blood and makes us a kingdom priest to God the Father, to Jesus Christ. Look forward to our Savior, to Jesus Christ. Be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. If you've never understood what it means for Christ to be Lord, today is the glorious day for you to find out salvation is here. That you today, I would love to discuss it with you. Come forward during the hymn of response. Find me afterwards. But I presume that many of us who traverse through the storm to be here today know Christ is Lord. I hope that's not a false assumption. If it is, if you have any doubts about that, please talk to me. I presume many of us claim Christ as Lord. And we do so even when our actions may not coincide with that reality. I am challenging you this morning to not be thick-skulled like the Israelites, but to faithfully follow the Lord into battle. There's an interesting position that the Christian soldier finds himself in. We're called to fight and to fight passionately and vigorously, aggressively, proclaiming the, the word of God with vigor and grace. While also understanding, y'all, we're already victors. One of my favorite sections of scripture comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I want to read this for us, verses 14 through 16. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To other, a fragrance of life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? These verses allude to the reality that we already are sharing in. We're already enjoying the victory Christ secured for all those who believe in him on the cross. At the same time, we are to be actively following him. We are to be the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. That means that though the victory is secured, we are honored with a job to do. To tell those lost, salvation is here in Christ, in Christ alone. As we are faithful in our mission, we will see Christ add to our ranks. 
We rest in the victory and we fight in the moment. All the while knowing who's sufficient for these things, not me. We're not sufficient for these things. But it is the power of God working in us and through us to accomplish his will. To him be the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity to look at your word. I thank you for giving us the whole testament of your word that we can look back to the historical narratives and see how you work, who you are. How though man is sinful and the devil is scheming, it is thy will that will be done. Lord, I pray that we rest in your will, knowing that you have given us the victory in Christ Jesus and that we have the inheritance coming. But in the moment, we work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. We work for you. We steward our lives for your glory. We proclaim your word, seeing you save people around us, not because of us, but through your word that we proclaim. What a grace it is that you would invite us into your work. Lord, may we not, may we not uh, give up on that mission you've given us to do. May we not look past the mission that you've given us to do. May we not have stale eyes to the battle in which we're called. But may we give you glory and honor and proclaim your name with your armor around us, fighting this war that we Share in the victory Christ has secured. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Durban Memorial Baptist Church Podcast. If you want to find out more about our church, you can check out www.durbanchurch.org. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or you can give us a call or text to 859-813-0369. Also, you can shoot us an email at brad at durbanchurch.org. Have a wonderful day and God bless.